Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Mentor Podcast. It's Dave here and it's been a while to be honest. Uh, I think the last episode I recorded was at the end of October and at that point we were in Spain and we're now here in sunny Costa Rica. So I've been thinking a lot about the podcast, about why I started it in the first place and um, you know whether I wanted to carry it on or not. And I kind of came to the conclusion that the only reason I really did it in the first place was for me, um, to give me an opportunity to kind of, I guess you could say, have my voice, speak to interesting people, and hopefully just make a tiny bit of impact into this world of masculinity that I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about. So um, I decided, yep, I need to be better at this kind of stuff and to be more consistent. So my commitment now is to start doing episodes on a weekly basis. Um, they won't all be episodes um, involving guests because the nature of what I'm doing at the moment with traveling, it makes it quite, quite hard to kind of line up and kind of coordinate with guests, particularly in Australia where it's 14 hours time difference. So like today is going to be a solo episode and what I'll do is pick a topic that I think is uh, contemporaneously important and matters to me and talk about it. And, and the point of doing that is really just to try and provoke maybe just some thought um, some consideration from the people who listen and you know I think there's a number of subjects in the world now that we need to talk about it's not about being right or wrong it's just about sharing our knowledge and sharing our opinions and find the way forward so today's episode uh, is the 25th of January here in Costa Rica and um, it actually is the 26th in Australia and the 26th of January in Australia is Australia Day and uh, there's been a lot of uh, talk back in Australia about the date, uh, whether that is the right date, or it should be moved, or etc. And I just think there's it's a, such a much more nuanced and, and complex matter than that. So I'm going to done some research about some facts and figures, which I think um, need to be spoken about. And I think most or a lot of Australians are incredibly ignorant about. Um, I guess the genesis of modern Australia and what happened when it started, partly because the school system has done a really terrible job of educating people about it. And uh, we need to look at Australia Day and the discussions about changing dates and in the context of that. Because to ignore it is just uh, completely missing the point. So that's going to be today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, as always, if you have comments or anything else, please reach out because, uh, you know, really want to try and get people to start thinking about these kind of things because they're important. All the best. Talk to you soon. Bye. So Australia Day, what's it all about? So Australia Day, I did some research on this and to be honest, it's so useful for me and I think everyone should do this process of actually trying to look behind, I guess, the headlines we receive from the mainstream media, which are so uh, facile and very, very uh, artificial, but that we only look at things in a very, very um, shallow perspective. So there's a lot more to the process. So the 26th of Australia, the 26th of January, sorry, in Australia has been Australia Day only since 1994 in the whole of Australia. The genesis of that day, that date, is it was the first day um, the fleet arrived in Sydney Harbour and also marks the day when the New Union Jack was raised by Captain Phillips and there was a declaration of sovereignty at that time. So the particular date 
the first fleet arrived uh, into Sydney Harbour and Australia was essentially just declared, uh, I forget what the exact term is, but um, terrace nullis, I think it is, essentially it's empty land. So uh, as was the like of those days in colonisation and exploration, you claimed it. Uh, so that's the background of that date. And predominantly what happened over the last 150, 200 years is that individual states picked a day to celebrate what essentially was the start of what you could call modern Australia. And the 26th was used primarily on the East Coast for a long time, like in Western Australia. I think the 1st of June was its foundation day. Um, that was that was the WA day, essentially. Uh, but 1994, it was decided that January 26th would be the national day of celebration and the idea of Australia Day. And it's a very noble idea. Is it's a day for all of us to come together and celebrate what it means to be Australian, uh, irrespective of where we're from, um, what our individual like cultural background is, but to celebrate um, what it means to be an Australian through, you know, socialising and um, just taking a moment to kind of step away from modern life and celebrate being Australian and. That sounds like a fantastic idea, doesn't it? But we have to look at that in the context of, you know, the impact on the indigenous population of Australia. And this is where um, the subject of changing the date, I think, is just a, is literally rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to make any difference to the indigenous population of Australia, how they feel about, you know, this country. It really is something that um, we're almost doing to to espouse our own guilt about the, the cultural history of of the colonisation of Australia. And while you know, I've had this discussion with people, and people say, "Hey, yeah, but you know, that was two hundred years ago. It's nothing to do with me. No, no, it wasn't anything to do. It's not anything to do with you. But you know, our ancestors, you know, came to Australia." And again, I'm not criticizing these people because it was a very different time in the world and this is how things were done. But our ancestors uh, claimed sovereignty over a land that had been occupied for uh, at least 45,000 years prior to that by the indigenous population. At least 45,000 years. I've read estimates as high as 160,000 years. But this you know, society or these, this collection of tribes that formed the indigenous population you know, were right across Australia. I was trying to find out you know, how many indigenous people were here when the, uh, the first fleet arrived. And it's obviously very hard to kind of get an accurate number. But I've seen you know, different kind of estimates based on research and the best guesstimate I've seen is somewhere between 315,000 and 1 million indigenous people were here at that time. And most put the, the estimate somewhere around 750,000. So it wasn't a small population then. And obviously, they would have drastically outnumbered the, uh, the colon colonizers. Um, and, you know, there was a obvious conflict between 
the colonizers and the the native population which um yeah from that moment from the the start of australia there's huge uh, trauma accumulated you know through particularly the indigenous population but you know when you look at the research and look at the stories you know there was slaughter you know throughout and on both sides because obviously the indigenous population were from their perspective being invaded so you know they defended their territory and the invading forces um there's no there's no pretty way to say this committed genocide against the indigenous population um it's very hard to figure out how many indigenous aboriginal people were killed um during the settlement of australia again because a the record keeping was was not great and also that um you know a lot of uh violence lots of slaughters were covered up because you know essentially the people responsible who were a mixture of um army the police and the colonizers themselves you know they they were risked being hung you know for what they did so it it's been massively underreported is most most uh, researchers opinion but it would appear that between 1836 and 1851 which was the most uh, violent period uh about 11% of the aboriginal population were killed the numbers that were killed and again this is not a what we'd review as viewers modern accurate statistics was somewhere between 11 and 14,000 people killed in recorded incidents okay and that's important to get your head around that that's just the incidents that have been reported and recorded and what when you read the research you see is that to this day uh researchers are still finding more and more sites where there are mass graves uh, where there've been uh, horrendous instances of of slaughter and um we're talking about you know men women and and children you know were murdered and i read some of these uh recorded of the documentating of these incidents and it is horrific and unfortunately it's become uh i think australia's like dirty little secret in that everyone loves australia who lives here because it's an amazing place but we don't really want to recognize kind of what happened here um it's uh it, it, i guess it's it's hard because you know i understand people's position people do feel that they're not directly responsible for what's hap- what's happened you know, i agree with that i totally agree they are not directly responsible but certainly as somebody who came from uh Great Britain to Australia you know i have to you know understand that my ancestors you know whether relatives or not you know were part of that um what happened and what happened was was horrendous um it's hard to know what the actual facts of a situation are because of the time that's passed and because of the fact that records you know were not accurate and today you know the researchers today are still finding um 
evidence of of mass killings and you know the word genocide does get banded around a bit too much these days it's a it's a terrible word with a terrible meaning but when you look at what happened to the aboriginal indigenous population of australia you know i think genocide is the appropriate word to use it was a genocide not just of actual um actual murder but it was the unintended consequences of, of disease which likely put cured by many times uh, the amount who died at the hands of you know, army police or colonizers um, by introducing diseases which were you know from out from Europe and from, from the UK uh, that's happened right across the world uh, if you look at the American Indians uh, the Inuit population in Canada, the same thing happened there. You know, these people were just weren't defenseless against diseases they'd never come across. And although there was no intention to use a disease as a weapon, that's effectively what happened. You know, that's what um, wiped out the majority of the American Indians. And although it's hard to know, that's likely what wiped out the majority of the indigenous population of Australia. So we now have a situation you know, in Australia where you know the population sits at about 3% of the uh, non-Indigenous population in Australia, about 812,000 people who identified as Indigenous in the last census. Um, and that number or that percentage you know, continues to shrink because you have the added, or the, the, the two issues here. One is the life expectancy of Aboriginal people in Australia today is about 10 years less than their non-Indigenous um, countrymen. So that's, you know, there's a, there are decreasing numbers anyway. And I think that number's getting worse at the moment, not better. Um, and you have um, people coming into Australia, obviously, from other cultures who are not Indigenous. So that, you know, we're seeing a large um, influx of migration into Australia at the moment, and none of those people will be indigenous. So that percentage number will always continue to, de to decrease, and that in itself creates a problem because people look at the arguments about Australia Day and say, "Why should we change the date for for a small minority?" And you know, this is true that they are a small minority. You know, three percent is a small you know, minority of Australians. You know, one in thirty-three Australians is Indigenous or thereabouts. Um, but we have to remind ourselves here that this land we live on, you know, was theirs, and it was theirs for a long time. It was theirs for at least forty-five thousand years, and I've seen, you know research and estimates to suggest that it could be as high as 160,000 years of continual uh, living in Australia by the indigenous population, oldest indigenous population on earth. And they had survived and flourished you know, as kind of a combination of hunter-gatherers, um, foragers, um, developed an uh, amazing culture, amazing diverse culture, 
Um, there are so many, and I, I wouldn't, I'd be a bit ignorant for me to say how many, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unique languages within the indigenous culture of Australia, many of which have died out because there's no one left to speak it, um, that developed. So you'd, you, might, you might have one tribe living, you know, 100 kilometers from another tribe who spoke a completely different language. And they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to actually communicate. So they've developed some really, really amazing culture. And um, we, again, we have to look at everything that's happening today through that lens. You know, it's not about Australia 20, uh, January the 26th, who gives a shit? And that really is, I said before, I say again, it's the cherry on top of Australia. And unfortunately, it's being served up as the main course. And I honestly believe that if you change the date tomorrow to another date, and to be honest, I've never heard anybody give a good argument for changing the date to another date that's going to be less offensive or upsetting to people of you know, indigenous background. So, you know, it, it's, I just don't think anything will change. You know, maybe we'll make our, our people who've got white guilt about the situation will feel better about themselves because they've, you know, they've campaigned and the date has changed. Uh, look, I guess these people certainly have a, you know, they, they, they their heart's in the right place. They think they're doing the right thing. But it is, it's the cherry on top. It is the rearrangement of the of the Titanic. And that's, at the moment, the indigenous population of, the, of Australia is the Titanic. It is facing a really, really dark future, I think. And uh, we'll talk about some facts and figures in relation to that. So we talked about life expectancy, and I, you know, I've spoken about that before. A couple of examples of that um, would be you know, the nutritional problem within uh, many parts of the indigenous population. So they, like their indigenous kind of... Um, relations not relations but the other indigenous populations in other parts of the world have exactly the same problem and you can see it and you can track it so you look at the american indians you look at the inuits in the north um they all were introduced to a western style food and all it's done is make them very very sick and it's created epidemic problems in relation to diabetes and things like that um obesity issues and just really poor health and um, it's hard to, um, it's not a problem you can just make you fix overnight because we've just given people who didn't eat anything like that, this kind of food, and they've become sadly, you know, was addicted to the sugar, I think. And like, remember I worked up in the north, in a place called South Headland, um, the hospital there, had a well-equipped local hospital. I think the population of South Headland was something around 15,000 had its own dialysis unit for a population that size. And the reason it had that was because they had a, a huge problem um, with diabetes getting to the point where people were losing limbs and destroying their kidneys. Uh, and you would just see people hobbling around the town with a foot missing or an arm missing or a leg missing. And it was very, very sad to see that. You know, that's, that's, and you know, we haven't even talked yet about the elephant in the room of addiction to you know both alcohol and other drugs but when people talk about you know oh we shouldn't do 
liquor restrictions. I can see both sides of this argument about liquor restrictions because if I'm a hard-working person of whatever background and I decide that I'm going to pick up a six-pack on the way home from work and it's like 44 degrees centigrade today, so yeah, a cold one's quite welcomed, and I go to the bottle shop and I find it's closed today because of the violence that's occurred in the town in the last couple of nights. I'd be thinking, wait a minute, I've not done anything. I've not stabbed anybody. I've not bashed my missus. Why should I suffer because other members of the community have done that? How is that fair? And you know what? It's not fair. It isn't fair. What also isn't fair, though, and this is the um, other side of the argument, is that it's not fair that women get beaten and men, men get stabbed, kids get neglected, abused on the back of alcohol. To give you an example, just a rough kind of comparison. So when I worked in Headland, uh, the bottle shop was shut on a Sunday. That was part of the local liquor called. So um, Sunday was always the quietest day of the week. And you would see a drop of up to 75% and for the police in terms of the, the jobs they got called in on a Sunday night compared to the rest of the week. Um, while I was there, there were numerous occasions where strict liquor were introduced because of there had been just an outbreak of violence or stabbings or domestic violence. And, you know, you would see overnight those jobs just didn't exist. So we know that alcohol is a key metric here. And alcohol facilitates a lot of the violence and the abuse that happens within that community. But like with Australia Day date changes, closing the bottle shop is again, it's just a, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's a, you know, it's it's it, it, it is dealing with the, the it's cutting the toe off when the whole leg's got gangrene, and it doesn't fix anything because after two days the bottle shops are open again and it starts again until the next time it gets really bad so you know alcohol is an enormous problem unfortunately um again my understanding is that it was never part of the uh it's not nutritional. They didn't have alcohol. So it was introduced by the colonizers. And for whatever reason, um, many people in that community have developed a real taste for it. And you see that every day. And the scale of the problem you know, has to be seen to be believed. And um, unfortunately, a lot of Australians have never traveled to even parts of Australia where you know, there's a large indigenous population. Um, so they're very ignorant of this situation. They may see what happens in the metro area, which is not good either, but the scale is completely different. And it's such a problem that, again, in Headland, the little liquor land store, it um, was the busiest liquor land, which is like a, an off-license bottle shop. It sold more red can. Um, emu export 
than any other liquor land in Australia every day for this small population. So that gives you an idea of the size of that problem, but you know that's just the input. The alcohol is just the start of the problem, and then that drives a lot of the other issues we're facing. So we know we've got a massive alcohol problem, and you know some of the other statistics here, which I've gathered, really kind of makes your head explode, or makes my head explode. So let's talk about crime and the current situation. So I looked at the Department of Corrections, and they measure prison population as like a uh, per 100,000 of the border population. So that's how you kind of see how many people are in prison. So the uh, average in Australia for 2022, I think I have here, was 202 per 100,000 population for non-Indigenous people. Okay, so that's people who don't identify as Indigenous. Uh, their rate of incarceration, 202 per 100,000. I don't know what percentage that is, but it's pretty, pretty low. Now, if we look at the Australia-wide measurement for Indigenous people, it is 2,354 per 100,000 population. So it doesn't take a, a genius to work out that's more than 10 times the rate. 10 times the rate. That's... That's, that's a head explosion right there for me. And then in Western Australia, it's actually far worse. It's actually the rate is 3,623 uh, people incarcerated per 100,000 um, population. So that is a quick bit of math there. What's that? That's 15, 16 times higher than the non-Indigenous population. So... Before we get into why that is, I think we'd have to agree that it's a failure. The Australian society has failed because you know that that's an output. Being locked up in prison is an output. It's not an input; it's an output. It's what happens at the end when you haven't done anything else about you know, what needs to be done. When you haven't got education right, you haven't got health right, you haven't done all those things right, then you lock up everybody. And uh, you know, as a police officer, I can say that. Um, I did a lot of locking up of Aboriginal people. Massively disproportionate to the, the wider society. And certainly, if you look at what I would call volume crime, so volume crime is property crime primarily, so stolen car, burgled house, stealings, you know, broken into a car, you know, those kind of uh, offences, the ones that frankly piss people off almost more than anything else because it's, it's always... You know, no one wants to be burgled. It's a horrible experience. You know, your car gets stolen. You know, you've got to deal with the insurance company. Someone breaks your window in your car and steals your, your loose change in your car and you've got to pay out $500 for a new window because you, you know, you've got a $300 excess or something. You know, it's, those offences drive people up the wall. I would say, and this is based on my personal experience, that the offending in those of those offences, like, you know, the, the people responsible are somewhere... Between seventy and eighty percent, I would say, are young Indigenous people, both boys and girls, though predominantly boys. But I actually think that's changing, and girls are becoming worse as well now. So, when you look at those statistics, um, you go, "Well, um, if you don't want to incarcerate so many Aboriginal people, maybe they should stop committing crime." 
And again, you're, you would be correct to say that, that absolutely, that um, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to look at this offending in the context of these people's lives. Um, most of these people have got addiction issues, very poor education, and they, yeah, it's very hard to explain to somebody whose life is the complete opposite. But if you can, just for a second, just imagine a situation where you're uh, trying to, you know, put yourself in the place of, of a uh, an Aboriginal boy, and you're maybe seven, eight years old. Um, it's and we'll talk about the statistics lately. You haven't got, you have no relationship with your father. Um, you've got maybe got a couple of older brothers. Uh, both of them uh, have been to prison, and um, there's alcohol and drug abuse in the house. There's domestic violence in the house. There's possibly child abuse in the house. And maybe if you're particularly unlucky, you are what we call a fasdi kid. Now, fasdi, for those who are not familiar with the term, is fetal alcohol syndrome, and that is when your mother drinks whilst she's pregnant with you. And if it's, I've seen some horrendous horrendous um, examples of that with kids who are uh, it's just it's hard to explain what these kids are like they have no impulse control um, they've got no boundaries um, they've got they're bereft of what we would normally expect um, a child that I used to have in terms of understanding of right and wrong they just don't care and but you know it ain't their fault it really isn't you know their brain has been destroyed before they even came out of the womb so you know that's you you're eight years old you know do you go to school mm, probably not because no one in the house gets up um and no one's got, an alarm, no one's got an alarm clock anyway and you haven't got a school uniform so no one expects you to go to school so what do you do you hang out at home bunk off your mates you know you need money where do you get that from you know someone break someone's car still there their gold coins out their ashtray. You know, this is what these kids' lives are like. And then they, as they go through life, they get older. When they hit 10, they're exposed to the criminal justice system. So they start to you know, have uh, actual court matters deal with. You know, the Juvenile Justice Act in, in WA, rightly, is designed to avoid locking up kids. Because, you know, just for a second, just forget what they've done. Just forget that for a second. That's so hard to do. Should we be putting 11, 12-year-old kids into detention, a secure detention, literally in a prison cell? It's a real hard one, isn't it? Because these kids, some of these kids who are 11 and 12 have committed 200 offences and give not one shit about you. But they're still a child so how do we deal with that as a you know mature society? It's a tough one. I, I, I don't pretend there's an easy answer here. That none of these questions have any easy answers. None. There is uh, a massive issue um, with abuse in, unfortunately, a lot of Aboriginal homes. There's no two ways to say that. 
there's a, there's a big problem with child abuse, child neglect. So, you know, these kids, we then find ourselves in a very difficult situation as a society because we look at what happened previously with the stolen generation, which, you know, for information, one in three children um, went through between 1910 and 1970s, you know, up to one in three kids were removed from their family and, uh, you know, were brought into what you could call the, uh, the system. And though maybe I'm hope I'd love to think that the idea of that process was a, was there, there was, there was, it was, no, no, it was done with the best of interests. You know, you'd hoped it would help these kids. But the, when you speak to people, and I have spoken to people who've been through that, who lost contact with their family, in some cases for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it is, you can see this trail of trauma go right through the whole process. But to have today, here and now, I don't, you know, we've gone so far the other way that we now have a situation where we're terrified of appearing to be racist by taking kids out of homes that, frankly, are dangerous for them to be in. And, you know, the, the hardest part of my job ever as a copper was, you know, leaving a child somewhere where you just didn't have a good feeling about it. And we would spend, in Headland, a large part of our time driving around um, from house to house trying to find somewhere safe for a child to sleep because it wasn't safe where their home was. And I think whatever your view politically or whatever else, I think we can all agree that every child deserves to have somewhere safe to sleep, where they're not going to be subject to violence or sexual abuse or neglect. And we have to put those kids at the centre of what we do. Because if you think about it, um, children have no concept of race or colour until we really, we, we kind of, society, culture educates them on it. So these kids, you know, these Aboriginal kids, we should treat them as if child protection, I think, is colourblind. Because the only thing that matters in the day is, is a child, any child, whatever colour that child is, race, creed, culture, whatever, that child has to be safe, has to be safe. Because all the other problems come from there. Do you think the kid that's out there committing burglaries when he's 13, you know, smoking ganja all day until he maybe tries meth, do you think he comes from a happy home? Do you think he's had a warm, you know, happy upbringing? No, he hasn't. His life sucks. And until we fix that, everything else is just, it's just window dressing. So some more you know, figures about the, the difference between the uh, indigenous and non-indigenous populations. So we're looking at 34% of female prisoners are indigenous as compared to uh, 27% overall. So the problem is not just restricted to, to males. Not at all. And the crazy thing about the prison situation, certainly in WA, is that 
a lot of the Aboriginal people I've spoken to going into prison have no fear about going to prison, A, because they've been there before, but also their friends are there. And because the, the, the prison population is so skewed towards Aboriginal prisoners, they actually have some power there. They have some status, particularly some of the the older crooks I've spoken to, you know, going back to prison for the God knows 15th time. They're treated with real respect in there by their by their community. So they, they don't mind it. Prison, you know, they get three meals a day and, you know, get looked after pretty well. They're, they're not scared of that at all, which is probably a lot better in their life. So you've got to fix that. Um, let's talk about... Um, Single parents, you know, single parents, I think, on the whole, is a massive problem for society. I believe it's a, it's a massive issue. So the figures I've seen that you're looking at 34% of Indigenous kids are growing up in single parent families, uh, as compared to 14% um, for non-Indigenous. Um, you know, I take my hat off to. You know, single mothers, single fathers. It's a very hard job. Um, you know, my wife Kaz was a single mum when we got together. It's a very hard job. People do their best. But again, it's one of those things where just because people do their best, I think we should still be able to say that the best environment for a child growing up is to have two parents. I don't actually care whether it's two men or two women or a man or woman, whatever, but two people in those roles of mother and father provide the best balance for a child growing up. And when you take out one of those, particularly it seems to be you take out the male, and particularly when that child is a male, it doesn't end well in many cases. And I see that, you know, you know this podcast is about mentor. You know, being a mentor for other men, there's there's a huge lack of good, strong, positive male role models in many Indigenous kids' lives, and uh, that that's a problem that we ha- again have to find a way as a society to improve on because it has an enormous impact. Um, it, it's a it's, it's a big issue, a big issue. Let's talk about like education. Um, so unemployment, sorry, employment. So we're looking at basically uh, the f- well, so the figures for non-indigenous uh, unemployed in Australia is about five point five percent, and for indigenous it's about seventeen point two percent. So yeah, it's three times the size. So you know, um, work. Having something meaningful to do with your life is very important. It's particularly important, I think, to men. And, you know, when I speak, when I've spoken in the past to Aboriginal kids, they've got no aspirations to do anything with their lives because they've never been given any thought or idea that they could achieve anything or be anything. And, you know, quite often they, they won't finish education, so they're not equipped for and the labor market as such. And yeah, if you are a kid who comes from a home where no one's ever had a job, just think about that, if no one's ever had a job in your house, you've never sort of seen the routine of dad or mum or both of them getting up and going to work, blah, 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 
And I'm not trying to say that work is the answer because, well, it ain't. And I gave it up because it wasn't. But certainly for young men, having some structure and some discipline is incredibly important. And to not have that in the family where you grew up, where you know where you uh, where you kind of develop those those skills is very very hindering, and it's very hard to know where you get those skills from if you didn't learn them from your from your parents. Then you have to look outside to the broader community, to um, school teachers, maybe school you know, sports coaches, those kind of people. We've all got a role in this, you know, and it's something I'm really passionate when we go back to Australia later this year is to find a way um, to get involved in that community, you know, to start to hopefully give some mentorship because I think that's probably where I see, you know, my my future. Uh, I'm just very passionate about it and I just see the effect that, you know, being a good role model can have on kids and that community and kids within that community desperately need that and it should be somebody from their own community. It really should be and we've got to develop those people We've got to give them the skills to be mentors, just to understand how important it is, because that is ultimately how we make the situation better. So then we come to, you know, changing the date. Should we change the date? I don't give a shit, to be honest. You can change it to whatever date you like. It will not make any difference to me. And I don't think it will make any difference to the uh, reconciliation process in Australia. It's just it is window dressing. It is irrelevant. You know, I'm sure if you tried hard enough, you could find a date that's less offensive. But again, you know, I haven't seen a lot of this. Actually, asking Aboriginal people what they want, and I think you know, well, how, we we do ask people Aboriginal people what they want. The date isn't really important. What they want is to be able to live their lives, you know, keep a hold of their culture and, you know, provide a better life for their children like we all do. So we have to engage with them, which brings me on to um, the voice. I don't know if uh, I've done a really piss poor job of explaining what the voice is in Australia. So my understanding is it came out of the... uh, the Uluru Statement, and really the voice is about Australia having a referendum whether we should have a voice, so there's going to be a referendum. And that voice essentially is just a way of having a Indigenous perspective within the political and cultural world of Australia, which is connected in some way to um, our existing political system. Part of the problem is no one's explained exactly what it is because I don't think they know yet. So essentially, we're going to be asked as a population to vote on something, yes or no, but really having very little content of what actually yes looks like. So I'm not predicting great things for this because you have to explain, I think, to people what it is you want them to vote for. Otherwise, what's the point? But do I think um, that the voice is going to help? Yeah, potentially. But... I'm going to give you my view now on what the solution is. How do we make this situation better? Now, it's just my opinion, but, you know, it's based on some experience and some, I guess, some anecdotal stuff that uh, has occurred to me. Right, well, this is my view, my personal view. I think that um, there is a way to make things better and make us all 
part of one country. And I think that starts very much with Australia becoming um, a republic. You know, we still have the ties to the colonial parent that was responsible for a large part of the genocide effect, you know, inflicted upon the Aboriginal people. So, you know, we look at the Australian flag, which I've always respected and you know served under. Um, but just imagine for a second, if you are an Aboriginal person, you know, essentially the the flag of your oppressor is this there staring at you. So, you know, why would you feel part of Australia if you saw that every day? So I think we have to become a republic. I think um, now that is the right time. Obviously, the Queen passed away last year, and I think there was a uh, emotional connection to the Queen because she'd been the Queen such a long time, um, which probably stopped this process happening you know, a lot sooner. If you look around the world uh, at the Commonwealth and how countries have gradually sought their independence and become their own individual republics, Australia is quite late to the party. And I think now that the Queen is gone, I think uh, King Charles, personally, I think it's an absolute flog. Um, it always has been. Um, I don't think it will ever be held in the respect that his mother was, even though I am no monarchist at all. Um, I certainly don't want him to be my head of state. I'm quite offended by it personally. So um, I think the time is now right for a serious discussion about becoming a republic and the thing that holds that back is a discussion around what replaces the current situation there's a you know a big chance to talk about that but that's the first stage we need to become a republic and in the process of us doing so becoming a new australia we need to come together behind you know a new flag involving, you know, in, in bringing our indigenous brethren into, you know, the tent with us. We need to become as one, and that's the only way to fix any of this stuff. It's a long process. You know, there is absolute generational trauma within the Aboriginal community. And if you don't think generational trauma is a thing, I'm sorry, you are uh, misguided on that, and you should do some research because it is a real thing. You can see many examples of it right around the world. So, you know, we have to find a way to improve and, you know, to, to deal with that generational trauma because it's affecting Aboriginal people today. And I think it's just being continued by the way they are seen and treated by a large proportion of the Australian community, to be honest. So let's become a republic. And when we do that, we can start the process of healing. I do think we may need some kind of possibly truth and reconciliation process to go through. Um, we do need to have, you know, as part of that um, redrawing of the Constitution of Australia, we need to have an Indigenous voice, you know, represented in Parliament, absolutely. And we have to start to make, make feel make indigenous people feel that they're part of this Australia that we live in and we love so much. Everything else from there, I just think, you know, we're just doing it backwards, you know, we change the date. I just think it, it, it's a distraction and I'm very annoyed, to be honest with the media for doing just a piss poor job of really explaining, you know, what's behind this, 
because it's, it's not about the date. It really isn't about the date. Um, and we, we're trying to kind of, uh, I don't know, reverse engineer the whole process by changing the last thing because what would happen logically, the date that Australia breaks free from the Commonwealth becomes its own modern republic, that is Australia Day. That's the day we, all of us, come together behind. And I think, you know, if the process is managed properly, it can be a day for everybody. And it's exciting for the future to, to think that could happen. Because I honestly think if, if it doesn't happen, we're going to be sitting here having the same discussion. And, you know, the thing that worries me the most is that we will change the date, some of the date, which, you know, I don't know which date's better. Not my kind of like say so really, because I'm not the one who's particularly offended or personally offended by it. But we'll change it to another date. And then people will kind of go, yep, good job done. Move on to the next uh, social justice issue of the day. In the meantime, fuck all has happened to the quality of Indigenous people's lives. They're not living longer. They're not completing education better. They're not being involved in employment. You know, their health outcomes haven't improved. You know, they're not involved with the criminal justice system. You know, nothing's changed, but we've changed the date. And we feel better about it because we've espoused some aspect of, you know, you can call it white guilt or whatever. But it, it's just window dressing. So I wish you a happy Australia Day. I do. At the moment, that is the day that we have to celebrate and we should all celebrate it. I would love, you know, if you do have, if you do have relationships with Indigenous people, just be aware that it's probably not the same for them as it is for you. And maybe it's time to start a discussion with them. So, you know, if you've got those friends, those acquaintances, maybe start a discussion with them. It's only by talking about these situations that we can start to make a difference to them. Otherwise, you know, we just continue in our own ignorance. And uh, unfortunately, I, I would really like to hope that as Australians, we are a lot better than the people that you see in the Perth Now comments section. But I'm also really have to know that, you know, a lot of us aren't. And um, for some reason, people are personally offended that there might be a, a, a move to change the date. And whilst I don't think it makes any difference to changing the date, I don't think it's something really we should do unless you know there's something else behind it. But they're personally offended that somehow you know their life is a little bit worse because it might be a different day. Because how dare us listen to the minority and uh, respond to that? Well, you know, people make the argument about, um, you know, it was 200 years ago, uh, time to move on. And like, you know, oh, and unfortunately, English people, Poms are terrible for doing this one of, oh, yeah, well, England was invaded plenty of times in history. And, like, you know, we've got over it. Yeah, okay. So the last time England was invaded was 1066. Okay. So we're not really comparing apples with apples. And, um, there's never really been genocide committed against the English people. There's certainly been some slaughter, you know, back in the Dark Ages. Um, but, you know, England was never colonised as such. And it's a very different thing. So this is a time for us to have empathy for each other and to really try and understand what's happening for people other than ourselves. Because too often we just look at the world through just our lens and we just see things in a very simplistic way and and this is not a time for that we've got to realize that um 
people have very different experiences to us. It doesn't make them better or worse people, but their their lived experience is very different. So, you know, when you've had the kind of uh, upbringing like I have, which, you know, I consider myself privileged in many respects in that, you know, I had two parents that loved me. Um, you know, we didn't have a poor upbringing at all. You know, we, didn't, we weren't abused, hit, nothing like that at all. I had a very privileged upbringing. And uh, although I didn't get on with my mum and dad particularly well at the time, um, you know, I look back on with thanks, you know, for the job they did of raising me because it, it, it helped form who I am today. But also recognise that when you take away all those things, you know, who would I be today? I think about that a lot because, you know, who would I have been if I, if I you know, came from a single parent family or my dad was an alcoholic or I got beaten or abused or whatever? I wouldn't be the same person. So expecting people who have been through and going through that life to be like me is just beyond arrogant and ignorant. Let's have some empathy for each other and let's come together. Have a great Australia Day, wherever you're doing, and uh, hope you enjoyed this. If you've got any comments or queries, hit me up. See ya.